I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. This month, with Christmas drawing near, join me on a journey called Advent. Constant Wonder is marking this venerable tradition, a calendar of hopeful anticipation, with daily short episodes, a new Advent experience every day all the way through the 25th. Together with special guests, we're seeking out the wonder and awe felt by so many people during this season of hope, reverence, peace, and goodwill. It's December 8th. Inevitable this season is a proliferation of art featuring angels. Now, the topic of angels is far from passé, but sometimes angels in art can be stock or cliché. Not so when the artist is the highly original William Blake, the English poet-painter-printmaker who was in his prime at the turn of the 18th century. Blake left us a painting of the Nativity called The Descent of Peace, and it shakes things up a bit when it comes to angels. To be truly fair, though, his whole concept for this painting is off the beaten path. To begin with, no shepherds or sheep, no camels, no wise men in sight. Then, oddly enough, John the Baptist shows up with his parents, Elizabeth and Zacharias. The Christ child, who, if obedient to tradition, would be fast asleep on the hay, is floating in an upright position, levitating in the air, hands thrust upward, his mouth seemingly open in a shout of glory. But then there's the angelic being. High above all else, over the stable, is an inverted figure representing peace, lithe and limber, seeming to be in motion like a heavenly gymnast. Blake's angels are always, they're not modeling. He doesn't do the kind of chubby baby that are so popular in, like, Renaissance compositions. That's our guest, Ed Simon, who has thought and published a fair amount about the artistic treatment of angels through history and various religions and cultures. He really likes the angel in the nativity I just described to you, the one by William Blake. If you want to see that painting, by the way, you can check it out on our website, byuradio.org slash constantwonder. This angel's kind of somersaulting in the air, and he's kind of upside down, uh, you know, has his arms akimbo. I, I think one of the things with Blakey and angels is they're not always, they're not as terrifying as the Bible, as Scripture describes angels as being. But So I, I think that Blake, one of the things that comes across in his sort of visual language is a certain eeriness or a certain otherworldliness. I first learned of Ed Simon in a New York Times piece that he contributed back in 2018, an article titled In Praise of Wonder. He's author of several books, including Elysium, A Visual History of Angelology, and Heaven, Hell, and Paradise Lost. If anyone has profound ideas about wonder and awe as these relate to angels and art, Ed Simon's your guy. Blake was attuned to things beyond the veil a little bit. He himself was very blunt about the sorts of things which he saw, and they were not metaphorical things. These were things that he claimed to have actually and literally seen, and I see no need to, to doubt him in that. So, for example, he would write about how he saw 
flocks of angels in the trees, these winged angels hanging from the trees in London where he lived. Roosting would almost be the word that I'd use as he describes it. And this is kind of shimmery, golden, incandescent, otherworldly appearance of angels in the trees. He also wrote about how when he was a child, he claimed to have seen God once. So he was four years old and he was playing in his his mother's kitchen and they lived in a rather modest cottage. And through the open window, God sort of poked his head in and just said, hey, to, to the young Blake. I don't know. I don't know if that was a neighbor and he misremembered it or whatever. You know, there's ways we can demythologize that. But there's something that I love about the sort of childlike simplicity of the story because he was a child obviously but then Blake was also you know songs of innocence and experience he's interested in innocence he's interested in kind of childlike faith Uh, and I love that like when God pokes his head in the window he's not like necessarily imparting grand wisdom he's just saying hello right it's just a greeting from God there's something that's I think very tender and it's just really intimate and beautiful about that to me It hasn't taken very long at all in this episode for us to arrive at the theme of the miraculous, the awe, wonder, and mystery associated with the season. Angels in popular culture, I think, suffer from a sense that they are kitsch or or saccharine or what have you. You know, you're thinking about the fat baby angels, the kind of winged baby angel, but they're still omnipresent. They're still universal. And and when I was writing Elysium, which is my book on, on angelology, One of the things that was interesting to me is how not difficult it was to find examples of them across religions and denominations and traditions. When the Protestant Reformation happened, which cut the cult of saints away and relics and all of these sorts of things that were kind of the the ornaments of medieval Catholicism, you would have thought that the reformers would have attacked angels in the same way, and they didn't. Angels remained very important within Protestant traditions. It's kind of impossible to exorcise them to a certain extent. I feel like they are the most almost the most universal aspect of the Abrahamic faiths, except maybe for God himself. So if so many people across time and place and culture, if they find the idea of angels, this belief in angels, so appealing, don't you kind of have to wonder if this isn't pointing to a a basic human need? I think it absolutely does. And I think that angels, I mean, they're messengers historically, right? And I think that they are a, a way in which we can imagine ourselves in communion with God that's maybe a little bit more accessible. But then the nature of the angels also, the, the angel is strange and other. I mean, especially in scripture where angels are, I mean, they keep on saying, be not afraid because people are afraid when they see angels, right? They're terrifying in scripture. The angel Gabriel seems to have been very aware that people might dread him. We're told that the Hebrew prophet Daniel fell prostrate with fear before him. Zacharias, father of John the Baptist, saw Gabriel and was instantly startled and gripped with fear. And in the scriptural account of his visit to Mary in Nazareth, Gabriel had to say, Do not be afraid, Mary, or in the classic King James translation, fear not. You wouldn't say fear not if there wasn't a reason to fear, right? And, you know, if you you think about how angels appear in Elijah or Ezekiel or whatever, I mean, we have, you know, wheels upon wheels with eyeballs within those wheels. And, I mean, the biblical angels are pretty terrifying. 
Which I think one of the interesting things with that is it also emphasizes how alien divinity can be. Christianity in particular, maybe all of the Abrahamic faiths, are riven by that paradox that the mind can't fully comprehend something that encompasses infinity and eternity in the way that the Godhead does. But then God also exists within time. So God is also here right now and not just alien, but profoundly familiar in that way, right? So I think that's what's so interesting with the angels is they kind of, they are like shards of divinity in that way. They are profoundly other, but then we also talk to them. So they are capable of communication with us. So it's that paradox of the thing that is familiar and different at the same time. If we humans ever managed to get over our fear, our our sheer dread of these angels, what would come next? I mean, traditionally, it's pretty well understood all across the board that these wondrous beings are like bridges, conduits to to something else, something beyond our, our very dull, very mundane existence. They're kind of that intercessor, right, between us and the divine. They're sort of strung between heaven and earth in a way that I think gives them an accessibility that sometimes God doesn't have. They're a personal and human, but also otherworldly way of thinking of ourselves in communion with God, is if I had to posit a hypothesis for their popularity, even if they're sometimes diminished or slurred or talked about as being a little bit sentimental. Ed Simon doesn't claim to have had the privilege of any angelic visitation, but he does describe an unforgettable event in his life that sounds very much like an epiphany, a moment of great illumination. It came when he felt the closing of the gap between himself and other people, that big gulf that seems to separate us permanently from all of those around us, something so difficult to overcome, to transcend. Yeah, so I I would have to say, you know, I've had a a deficit of mystical experiences from what I'd like to have, you know, they're not real common. I don't know that I have that sort of spiritual affinity that some people are more blessed with, but I have had those moments and I think that they're more common maybe than people are willing to to confess to. The one that I specifically write about and nothing else was happening at this particular point, which is I also think a sign that there's something profound in that moment I was living in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania at the time, sort of post-industrial Rust Belt Hamlet. It's more than just a little convenient for our purposes. It's poetic, don't you think, for him to have been living in a place called Bethlehem. And I had an apartment that looked out over on the river, and you could see the kind of rusting old Bethlehem steel mill like a mile or two downriver. And this was, you know, the same sort of evening I'd had any hundreds or thousands of times at that point. And suddenly just had an overwhelming sense of kind of the, the oneness of reality and sort of a, an idea of universal love. And I just had a tremendous empathetic affection for everything, for everybody and everything. And it was a a beautiful, blessed moment. I should emphasize I was not drunk or high at this point. In fact, I was a couple months sober at that point, and I had given up drinking to great acclaim, I think, to everybody. You know, sometimes recovering alcoholics talk a little bit about what they call the, the pink cloud. So when you're not using anymore, you kind of have this benevolent feeling. And so maybe it was related to that, maybe not, I'm not sure. I don't know if like some neurotransmitters got knocked loose up in my brain or whatever, but 
it was what it was. It was this kind of incredible feeling. And it wasn't, you know, I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. Nothing supernatural happened. But it wasn't made by anything that I had done either. And I've had maybe a handful of other experiences like that in my life. And I think that, I think a lot of people have those kinds of things, but they don't necessarily talk about them all that often. So if you were just minding your own business and doing nothing, and this ambush comes along, isn't that a little analogous to the shepherds on the hill and suddenly the angels show up? I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, maybe the angels are a way of kind of expressing that experience or something or giving it a little bit more texture, a little bit more detail. That's certainly what it felt like in the moment to an extent. Gillian of Norwich, the, the great medieval English mystic, she has that line where all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well, which I love that as a line because there's something, you know, it's so pacific. There's something that puts you at ease about it. And in that particular moment, I had the sense of like kind of everyone else muddling along as best they can. And I just had a real tenderness or love, I think, for for my fellow humans and it's not a feeling that I have a whole lot, right? Normally, I tend to be a little bit crankier, but just this kind of sense of like the miraculousness of every individual who is so infinite and so deep and kind of separate from ourselves, but, you know, equivalent to ourselves in some way. And I just had this kind of flashing moment of understanding that, not intellectually understanding it or writing about it, which I can do, but actually really comprehending it, really knowing it. I think maybe it's such an overpowering, awesome thing to truly understand that you couldn't feel it in its entirety all the time because it would incapacitate you. But you're kind of gifted this little view into that sort of eternity every now and then. Thanks for joining us for our ongoing Advent series on Constant Wonder. Today's guest, Ed Simon, is an accomplished freelance writer and editor. He's author of Elysium, a visual history of angelology. This episode was produced by Eric Schultzka with help from Lydia McElroy and sound designed by James Call. If you'd like to go back and catch any of the earlier installments in our Advent series, you can find them at byuradio.org. Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We began this Angels episode with an image of a joyful angel on Christmas morning turning somersaults over the manger scene. Join with us tomorrow for a visit with the Pope's astronomer, as he's called, a conversation about the true meaning of miracles. A miracle is a jolt out of my day-to-day that makes me aware of the presence of God. And that can't help but make you smile. That can't help but make you laugh, make you dance. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.